Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 51, brought to you by Lifetree at PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm author of the recently-ish released book, Spiritual Grit, and uh, The Jesus-Centered Life, which is sort of a sort of the foundational book of my life, I guess you could say. It's, it's, uh, it was the product of a lot of people asking me, uh, after the release of my book, Jesus-Centered Youth Ministry, a lot of people asked me, what about uh, living a Jesus-centered life, not just a Jesus-centered ministry? What is that? And it took a long, many years of percolating before I was ready to write that book. So that's what the Jesus-centered life is about. I'm also general editor of the Jesus-centered Bible, which... We've been talking about for a month or over a month now. Can you think of a more perfect gift than a Jesus-centered Bible for somebody uh, headed into the Christmas season here? I mean, if you want a literally a gift that keeps on giving, <laughs> then the Jesus-centered Bible is it, because it will be a lifelong companion for whoever you give it to. So uh, we're in the third episode of this month-long pursuit of the heart of Advent, and again, just as a reminder, we're focusing on light entering into the darkness. Today, the, the day that we're recording this, um, is the anniversary of a school shooting at Arapahoe High School that my daughter Lucy was involved in five years ago. She was, five years ago today, uh, running for her life from a shooter who had entered her, her school. And I, I was here at our group headquarters when my wife called me desperate um, after uh, finding out that this active shooter uh, situation was happening right then. And I just remember driving the hour and a half back down to where I live, wondering what was hap- happening to my daughter the whole way down. And um, so today is a, is, a, is a day of darkness for my daughter. And uh, I was talking to her yesterday. She just sensed in, her, in herself that the anniversary of the shooting was coming. She didn't look at a calendar. She just, her soul knew that the day of the anniversary was about to be here, because she still has trauma from this experience. And she decided to post on Facebook today that the message, the story coming out of this traumatic experience for her is the conquest of light over darkness, and that it's easy to sink back into the details of the darkness, but the truth is, light wins. And she wanted to post that on Facebook today. And that's... That's a pretty good metaphor for what the Advent season is all about. Light wins. Darkness doesn't. (laughs) It can get as simple as that. So we're not really preparing for the birth of Jesus, like sometimes we say in church, because the light has already come and has penetrated the darkness, has exposed the darkness, and the light's never going to go away. So we want to kind of consider some of the realities of this season of Advent, and focus on the heart of Jesus and ways to draw more near to the heart of Jesus in the midst of all of the busyness and uh, marginless life that we have during this season. And today, Steph Hilbery is on the episode. Hey, everyone. And by the way, Steph's had a change in her responsibilities here at Group, and that means she won't be on the podcast as often. We'll still probably Mm -hmm. drag her on here every now and then, but 
she told me that the reason why she can't be on as often is because of these this shift in her responsibilities. And I suspect the real reason is I wear overbearing cologne. <laughs> It could, it's could. also during the company snack time, and that oh, really yeah. interferes with my snacking. The truth comes out. <laughs> so, no, no, so. it really actually has to do with other responsibilities. So, yeah. if only we could bend this time and space continuum. Yeah. Aren't you wondering right now what these other responsibilities are? <laughs> it's like it's like she's a she's a spy for the CIA. <laughs> And she cannot reveal the other responsibilities because she'd have to kill you if she did. So Yes, that's what it is. If you knew Steph personally, the idea that she could kill you would not be a distant possibility. So so we'll we'll just leave the other responsibilities a mystery. But every now and then we'll probably drag her on here. So on this podcast, we we like to jump into mud puddles. That's some of the language we use here. And if you're new to the podcast and you've never heard me say that before, a mud puddle is a term that I use for any story about Jesus that we sort of unconsciously jump over. There are so many of these, like if especially if you've grown up in the church, you've heard a lot of language around Jesus and stories about Jesus that you think you kind of know, but then if you actually paid attention to what he said or did, you'd have to say, I don't really understand that. What is that anyway? And a mud puddle is something that adults will always jump over when they come up to one, but a child comes to a mud puddle, and they might just jump into it and wallow around in there and splash around. Well, these stories about Jesus that we typically jump over, we, we take on the mentality of a child, and we jump into them and wallow around instead. So today, we're going to jump into a mud puddle that has a surprising connection to Advent. It's from John 16. And we're going to focus on verse 33. So if you're not driving right now and you want to crack open your Jesus-centered Bible, um, you can crack it open to John 16, verse 33. Um, we're going to read this verse, but then we're going to explore the context a little bit too, because it's always important to explore the context of any verse. The Bible is not a verse-by-verse handbook for life. It's the story of God. And so when we divorce verses from their context, we are losing part of the narrative of the story and its impact. So we'll, we'll study the context as well, but first let me give you the verse. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He has an eye toward the cross. He, he is headed down the steep slope to the cross at this point, and this is in an intimate time with his disciples that he's uh, speaking these words, and he says, I have told you all of this, again, we'll tell you what that context is in a second, but I've told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world, is his promise. That's what we're going to focus on today is our mud puddle. What the heck does it mean that Jesus has overcome the world, and why would that be an encouraging thing in the midst of our grief and sorrow and trials. So you've probably heard this same phrase many, many times, um, especially if you've grown up in the church, that, and that mud puddle buried there is probably something that you haven't often thought about. It sounds vaguely positive, doesn't it? Uh, okay, you've overcome the world, and that's going to help me, I think, if I knew what that meant. Yeah. But the context here starts in chapter 15 of John, and it's Jesus sort of turning a corner here. Uh, it's a really distinct, powerful, cl- clarifying stretch where he's basically giving them raw truth. 
He's saying, here's what's about to happen to me, and here's what's about to happen to you. So in chapter 15, all the way through most of 16, Jesus gives his disciples this like triple dose of brutal reality. He's telling them that they should expect persecution and hatred and murder and mourning and grief and sorrow and abandonment and betrayal and fear. That's what's ahead of them. It's super sobering. And of course, if you were standing there listening to this, listening to Jesus tell you this brutal reality, you would want to know what Jesus is planning to do about all this stuff, this destruction. What's his answer to it? Well, his answer is, but take heart, because I've overcome the world. So he's saying a lot of bad stuff is going to happen to us, and then his response, this vaguely positive response, is, is his way of dealing, uh, helping us to have hope and encouragement in the midst of that bad stuff, but it leaves us sort of vaguely unsatisfied <laughs> by his answer. So, Steph, what's your take on what Jesus says here, and, and how does it hit you? Well, it's peevish. Really. Peevish. It's peevish. <laughs> Not a word you hear outside of the United <laughs> Kingdom very often. But. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, helpful, but in kind of a vague, um, unspecified way that you could take comfort in, but also be like, but what do you mean exactly? Yeah, and and if you if you kind of slow down into in John fifteen and sixteen and you kind of walk slowly through this brutal reality that Jesus is laying out. One thing you realize is that, wow, Jesus is not promising us the American dream here, because he's speaking to his disciples, but he's also speaking to us. It's not just that his disciples are going to experience these things. He's trying to level set our expectations for reality for for his, for his disciples of all time. And here, as Americans, for instance, we we believe, we've been told since we were little kids— that one of our inalienable rights as Americans is that we we inherit the American dream. And if we don't have the American dream, we complain about it and say there's something wrong with the system because not everyone has access to the American dream. And politicians campaign on making sure that everyone has access to the American dream, this thing that is supposed to be our norm and our, sort of our birthright. And the American dream is really I have a house, a car, a spouse, two kids— and a good paying job. That that's those are the kind of the essentials of the American dream. And uh, it's it's funny because we accept that as like I said as our birthright. But nowhere do you find Jesus promising that sort of thing um, as our inherent birthright. Instead, he's actually the opposite. He he kind of tears back the facade of what we expect life to be and says, no, it's going to be more like this. And then he he attempts to make that better by giving his vague promise of overcoming the world. So <laughs> Jesus is upending our norm, what we expect to have happen, and that's why uh, the, I think this site, version that probably many of you use to access devotionals and uh, scripture plans and things like that, it's hugely popular, version is. It's like 330 million people use the site, so it's like extraordinarily popular. And I didn't know this before this year, but every year they take a look at, they take some inventory with um, what verse is the most shared, bookmarked, highlighted verse of the year. And this year, that most popular verse is from Isaiah 41.10, and it's, Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. So, Steph... (laughs) 
But I, I mean, some of this is it seems obvious, but but that is the most popular verse of 2018. Why do you think it is has that status? Well, probably because all of the preceding conversation Jesus was having about how life would be, the reality of life, is in fact still reality of life. Yeah. And when I read that verse and some of the other popular verses broken down by country, it just reminded me of how the human experience is still really quite universal. Life is full of hard challenges, and we reach out for comfort to God, and that's a very, very pervasive part of our experience, maybe pervasive is the wrong word, but it's a very common part of our experience with him. I remember, uh, I was I can't remember what book I was writing, but I was in the middle of writing one of my books, and I was having a conversation with my close friend, Tom Melton, who has impacted my life in like a thousand ways. And I was talking to him about this idea that uh, it's, it's really even related to this, when Jesus says, take heart, I've overcome the world, well, well, okay, that should be enough for us then, that Jesus is saying there's something about him that has overcome the world that will give us hope. And I was talking to my friend Tom about this, and I think I was probably over-spiritualizing this in the moment. Go, go figure. Uh, <laughs> but I was over-spiritualizing this a little bit, and Tom looked at me and he said, you know what, Rick, when people are in trouble, what they want is to get out of their trouble. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the human response, mm-hmm. and it's universal. So never forget that what we really want on a default way is when we're in horrible circumstances, we want the horrible circumstances to change. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with the human desire to want those circumstances to change. And yet, we're left in tension because Jesus doesn't promise us a changed circumstance. Mm -hmm. He just doesn't. That's the peevish part. That is the peevish part. (laughs) And peevish is probably a mild word for what we think inside sometimes when the circumstances aren't changing, right? And we raise our fist. Either I I have physically raised my fist. uh, to Jesus sometimes, because I've been so frustrated at circumstances not changing. And we give some permission for this when you read the Psalms, such a raw account of David's relationship with Jesus, where a lot of the way he responds to to God um, in the Psalms is the way we wish we could if we weren't trying to be good Christians. <laughs> he, he's very verbal and very demonstrative when he's upset with God. And God seems to enjoy that and invite it and give permission for it. Um, so it's a normal thing for us to be peevish about this whole whole deal, I think. Mm-hmm. I mentioned the school that my daughters have gone to. Um, they've also, uh, in the five years since this school shooting, they've also gotten sort of a reputation in the state. This, this school has, it's an incredible school, but it's gotten this reputation also as a school where there are regular suicides. And this year is no different. There were two suicides to start off the year. My younger daughter, Emma, had some bare connection to both of these people. She wasn't friends with them, but she knew knew people who were, basically. And uh, so in in the slipstream of these suicides, the first one was with a, a, a guy who was quite well-known in the school. Um, he was much loved in the school as well, uh, he had started his own clothing line even while he was in school to try to bring um, attention to problems of mental illness because he himself suffered from mental illness. Uh, and so he had been out there about it. Uh, in, in every way, it seemed like you know when you drag the dark thing into the light, at least it's not being hidden. So he wasn't hiding his struggles, but in the end, those struggles overtook him. 
and he took his own life. And about a month after, or a month or two after the suicides, there was a uh, an assembly at the school at night, and the mother of that boy was so, what you might call the keynote speaker of the assembly. She just wanted to talk to the students who came that night about her experience with her son and what she felt like she would do differently, if anything, in retrospect, and wanted to encourage the kids there to take another route. And one of the extraordinary things about this is that this woman was able to stand up in front of a crowded auditorium just a month or two after her son took his life and try to offer something to these students. And a lot of people said to her, man, I can't believe how strong you are. Well, I know a close friend of this woman, and that close friend told me that when she heard those things, she knew inside, I'm really very, very weak, but I'm trying to maintain a facade of strength because I'm trying to help in the midst of this. But the truth is, I'm really weak. I have to be held up. Uh, my arms and my, my soul and my heart have to be held up in order to do this. And that's an interesting way of thinking about um, what Jesus gives us when he says, I have overcome the world. So really what we want is the circumstance to change. Hey, why didn't you intervene with my son so he wouldn't take his own life? Well, there was no intervention, or at least it, there was no intervention that kept him from committing this act. And yet now what is, what is Jesus offering this woman? I think he's offering her the strength to stand up and help others in the midst of it. That is miraculous. So I guess that's one way of kind of contrasting these things. But the truth is, at the bottom of our soul and the bottom of that mom's soul, yeah, that's nice that I have strength to stand right now, but I wish the help would have come earlier so that my son would never have been in this situation in the first place. Is there anything like that for you, Steph, that you think about that that is like that? Well, maybe perhaps less intense, um, but I have in my past had some uh, dabbling in entrepreneurship and have known a lot of small business owners, and especially small business owners kind of starting out. And this is a really common um, story where you, you start something, you have a lot of hope, and you really invested in it and even financially invested in it um, for some people to a big degree. And there's just a lot of stories where it does not work out. And I think those are really, a lot of those entrepreneurs down the road will say, I learned this, or it, it didn't work out the way I thought it would, but another door opened. Um, and of course, we hear these very inspirational stories of entrepreneurs who, you know, the, the kind of Thomas Edison, I, I tried and I tried and I tried and I failed and I failed, and then finally, um, I succeeded. And I think that there's still a lot of stories where it just failed and the circumstances didn't change and there were lots of prayers to God for help for the business to grow or to thrive or succeed and it didn't work out. And and even where that kind of reflection down the road like, oh, well, it didn't work out this way, but this happened. Even some people who have yet to really experience that, that thing that happened after the fact, they're still kind of waiting to see how does that experience in my life, how is it shaping the future in a way that feels redemptive to me? And they're kind of um, not quite sure yet what that will be, or even if it will happen. So, uh, What's interesting about what you're saying, that I think it's really important to, to recognize that we crave redemption. In our stories of disappointment, discouragement, and failure, we're looking 
for redemption in there. And we often do find it in the sense that we can look back on these experiences and say, here's how I grew, but there's still an edge to that. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and I was talking about something difficult I was trying to face, and I'd kind of... It's been this particular difficult thing feels like a marathon difficulty. I just keep coming back to this difficulty and trying to face it, overcome it. I'm getting tired. I'm probably getting tired is the wrong way. I'm I am tired. <laughs> uh, and so I was telling him about this challenge, and I and I looked at him because we've both been around the block, we, and we both love the heart of Jesus primarily. And I said, you know what? I know also that Jesus has bigger fish to fry with me. He is trying to transform me, and he's using leverage, real leverage, to do that. And I looked at my friend, and I said, dang it, or some <laughs> words like that. <laughs> because, because, yeah, because we recognize that he's trying to do a good thing, but we still feel some uh, maybe unspoken resentment that, well, why can't you just change the circumstances mm-hmm. once instead of changing me? <laughs> totally. So... You know, we, we sometimes resent Jesus' purposes in our life. We get tired of growing, I guess is another way of saying it, mm-hmm. that, that that's really his, his goal. But uh, that's why it's important to wallow around in this mud puddle a little bit, because Jesus is promising us something, and he's saying, I want you to take heart. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to have hope because of what I'm about to say to you. So that's why it's important we, we get our hearts and heads around what is it he's actually promising us. So first we could say that that he's really uh, pointing to the Incarnation when he says, I have overcome the world, because the Incarnation really, uh, what we celebrate in Advent, is when the overcoming of the world is really launched in that dirty little stable in Bethlehem. This is a seal, Navy SEAL attack <laughs> on an in enemy territory, and that birth in that stable is the beginning of the overcoming of the world. Um, I love how Eugene Peterson plants this iconic uh, paraphrase of the, some of the opening words of the Gospel of John. He says about Jesus entering into the world in the Incarnation, he says this, "...the Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood." <laughs> that is the beginning of the takeover, of light penetrating the darkness and the overcoming of the world. But in this observance of Advent, um, because of this, we focus all we focus all of our attention on the power of the incarnation, the light coming into the darkness, and this promise that He's going to overcome the world. But what does it mean for us right now? So let's let's start out by examining overcoming the world. What does Jesus mean by the world? Since that's the thing He's promised us that He's overcome. So Steph, what do you think of when you when I say? He's overcome the world. What does the world mean? Well, it our current reality. I mean, essentially, the I would say the world is real. It's the physical space that we live in. It's you know fixed by time, which is a really limiting factor, and age, which is a really limiting factor. But also lots of ideologies and sort of um, systems that that we fall into that kind of spell out how things are supposed to work or how we should think or feel or behave about things. And some of these narratives are really quite timeless, regardless of the time you live in or the culture you live in. They're kind of these underlying, you either have 
God's messages, or you have a lot of hedonism, live for yourself, indulge the flesh, um, promote yourself above others, that kind of thing. Yeah, so it really you're saying it's it's the contrast, uh, the, the contrasting darkness of a culture that uh, in, in light of the light of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a culture that has values and mm-hmm. forming structures and boundaries and powerful influencing truths that are embedded in it, and so does the kingdom of this world have powerful, quote-unquote, truths that are embedded in it, things that form us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so the kingdom of this world means that we live under the rulership of an unredeemed value system. Mm-hmm. And in contrast, there's the kingdom of God that Jesus is inviting us into, which is a redemptive culture, and it's quite different than the kingdom of this world. So you could another way you could say this is that the world is, is the temporary impact and influence of the world's power. And the reason I say it's temporary is because Jesus says, I've overcome the world, that the kingdom of God is in our future, one way or another, so this kingdom of the world is temporary. We're living in a temporary, influential world system, and Jesus is inviting us to live right now in the midst of that temporary culture, a permanent culture, live in a permanent culture called the kingdom of God. So one way to kind of explore this further is to take uh, one of the iconic stories of Jesus entering into Grief, sorrow, mourning, abandonment, betrayal, all these things that, that he's warning his disciples in John 15 and 16 are going to happen to them, they actually happen to his best friends, uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Um, in the story of Lazarus's death, we get Jesus responding to um, the very kinds of destructive things that can happen in our life, in our own brutal reality. We get Jesus responding to them. So... so uh, of course, uh, that it's it's important to read all of the context of this story so we can talk about what is Jesus's promise of overcoming the world. How does that get lived out in this story? So let me read to you the raising of Lazarus from John chapter 11. Here we go. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. And by the way, just as an aside, these are the people that Jesus hung out with a lot. They were his friends. They weren't part of his 12 disciples, by the way. These were his the, the friends he hung out with when he just wanted to hang out. So he was close to Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They were some of his best friends. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going to go there again? Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there's danger of stumbling because they have no light. There's a cryptic response. (laughs) Then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. 
The disciples said, well, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So Jesus says at the beginning here, we got to stop and slow down here, he says Lazarus' sickness will not end in death, and yet then he's saying in so many words to his disciples, and he's died. <laughs> so there's a lot of a, a, a lot of conflict and confusion already in what Jesus is saying. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sakes I'm glad I wasn't there. For now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. So Thomas, nicknamed the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. <laughs> There's a cheery thought. Let's go back to where they almost stoned him so we can die too. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. Notice Mary didn't. Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Well, yes, Martha said, he'll rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I've always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who's come into the world from God. And then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, The teacher is here and wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha had met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved them? But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Well, Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll a stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. Later on, we see Lazarus show up again in Jesus' stories, uh, serving him once again at a meal. So uh, their friendship goes on, just a little blip <laughs> in the whole string of their friendship. Oh, yeah, he died. I left him there for a while until he smelled, and then I called him out again. So there we have this uh, rambling, long encounter. It's unusual in Scripture that there is this long of, a, of an account of one of Jesus' encounters, and I think it's because this was a key thing. Um, so the, a lot of detail was necessary. So Martha's response to Jesus after Lazarus, dis, Lazarus dies is that, yes, Jesus, I know the resurrection's going to happen later, kind of like uh, 
big deal, Jesus. The problem and the grief is here and now. The circumstance is here right now, and you're talking about the future. I don't care about the future right now. That's essentially what Martha is saying back to him. And Mary probably would have said the same thing even stronger, because she doesn't even show up to greet him. She's so heartbroken and angry. Uh, But Mary's response is similar. If only you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. So no matter what Jesus promises about the future, it doesn't mean that much to them in the moment. So, Steph, when we think about this encounter and the idea that Jesus is overcoming the world, and he's doing that right now with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, what, what does that mean? What, what, how do you see in Jesus' response to this that he is overcoming the world, and the world right then is full of grief and sorrow? Well, I definitely think he is trying to shift their perspective to a larger story. He's talking a lot about how, you know, she says, well, sure, later this will happen. And he says, no, I am the resurrection. And that it's, it's a similar statement to the kingdom is here and now. It's this kind of mind-bending paradigm shift where he's challenging us to recognize that there's a whole other reality unfolding in his presence that's totally contrary to what our circumstances are. And we do have some clues about why Jesus does what he does here, because he kind of cryptically explains uh, what he's doing to his disciples. Um, First, he talks about the 12 hours of light in the day, and you got to walk safely in the day because they have the light, but at night people stumble because they have no light. Um, And he's really obliquely referencing himself here, that I am the light of the world, and you can walk safely when there's light, meaning no matter what happens, no matter how bleak things are about to be, no matter how desperate the situation you're about to enter into, don't forget that there's light here. The the darkness isn't here, the light is here. And so we get these kind of oblique references, but uh, when I think about this story, I think about um, Jesus intending to show his disciples and everyone that his authority, his power, his strength, his life supersedes everything, including death. Death is not bigger than Jesus, and he needs to make an exclamation point about this so that people will remember that this central truth about Jesus is that death is nothing to him. He, he supersedes death. It's not that big of a deal. He calls what happened to Lazarus sleeping, and his disciples are like, okay, if he's sleeping, big deal. And that's exactly the impression Jesus is trying to leave with them. Death is like sleeping. It's not a big deal. Let me show you. What I love about this is he's playing some high-stakes poker here with one of his best friends. He's, he wants to make this point, and so, so that, that making the point is personally costly to him, he decides to make his point through one of his best friends. He is respecting his best friend enough to go through a horrific experience. Uh, Who knows what Lazarus was thinking as he was nearing death, leaving his two sisters all alone to fend for themselves, and um, all of the friends and people that he's impacted in his life, um, and his life is coming to an end, and there's no hope. There seems to be no hope. Jesus was willing to allow his friend to experience those traumatic emotions, 
And he chose a friend to do this, not a stranger. I find this really profound. And because he chooses a friend, when he shows up and sees the, the shattering grief of the people around, he, he feels two very strong emotions. One is anger, and, and uh, I want to ask you about that in just a second, Steph. One is anger, the other is, tr- is grief. He weeps. It is personally costly to him that his friend Lazarus has died, and he knows that he chose it this way. So he, his grief is evident, but why do you think he's so angry? Steph? I don't I mean obviously we can speculate. I think death is um, not the plan. You know, I think that we all set, feel a sense of violation when it comes to death and perhaps that was what was angering him was that there's there was this destructive plan that was a seed planted way back at the beginning of our experience as humans and and it's still impacting, and he desperately wants to change that, and it's um, it's just a, a violation. And here, when he when he enters into this situation, here's where it ties into what overcoming the world is. When Jesus shows up, the gift that he's bringing, the answer to the grief and sorrow and betrayal and abandonment that these people feel, is his presence. We know that he thinks of his own presence as being the source of encouragement and hope, because he says to Martha, when he tells Martha, your brother's going to rise again, and Martha misconstrues what he's saying and says, yeah, I get it. A long time from now, he will. Jesus reorients her entire perspective and says, "Uh, you don't understand. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Um, The resurrection isn't a thing. It's not an event. It's a person. I have resurrection life in me. And then he says, anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. And belief, uh, maybe a way to reconstruct what belief is, belief is our knowing, committed attachment to Jesus. We, in a a, uh, determined way, say, I'm going down with that ship. I am hanging on, clinging on, attaching myself to Jesus no matter what. Um, that's what the belief that Jesus is talking about here. It's our committed attachment to him. And so when he says, anyone who believes in me, we can say, anyone who is determined to attach themselves to me will live even after dying. Why? Because they're attaching themselves to the resurrection itself. What he, they're attaching themselves to life, and that life cannot be conquered by death. So he, he's saying... You have resurrection right now in your presence. Everyone who lives in me lives in me. That There's that attachment again, that sense that we are grafted branches into the vine, and our very life is now attached and inside his life. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. And then he asks Martha, do you believe this? I love that last thing. He's, he's inviting Martha to remember, to 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 take her her tentative little steps back into hope, that his presence is her hope, even though her brother still lies there dead. And we know that these are tentative steps because when Jesus approaches the tomb and says, roll away the stone, Martha's like, but Jesus, you don't understand. It's going to smell when you do that, and you can't do that. It's going to be terrible. And Jesus has to remind her again, hey, Martha, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory 
if you believe. He's saying, attach yourself to me. I'm the life. I'm the resurrection. Um, believe in me, and you're going to seek God's glory. So Jesus' purpose here is to reveal and to highlight and to spotlight the glory of God. And the glory of God is how beautiful he is and how beautiful the kingdom of God is. He wants to plant an exclamation point in our consciousness that this moment when his friend comes back out of the cave is a moment to remember that his very presence is life. So is this real deliverance? Are we talking about adopting a state of mind, or what is this? Do we expect circumstantial miracles? And is that a legitimate expectation from Jesus? You, you had said the other day, Steph, we were talking about this, and you, you brought up something I thought was fascinating, this, this whole sort of grin and bear it mentality that we develop as followers of Jesus. We kind of say, I don't get it, I wish my circumstances would change, I guess I'm going to have to grin and bear it. I don't really get it, though. And you made a comparison to Jewish culture. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I was thinking about the disciples and kind of their context, especially in John, um, the previous chapter where Jesus is kind of going through this list of horrible things that will happen, and how, you know, when we hear that list, especially in our more contemporary American culture, I think we kind of shy away from that, because to Rick's point earlier, the American culture gives us a very different vision of how life should be. So he's explaining life probably in a more, arguably, in a more realistic way. Um, but I was thinking about how um, Jewish culture is very different from ours in that they celebrate suffering in a way that I don't think we do. Their holidays, like, for instance, their Passover, their Feast of Tabernacles, so these big sort of pivotal highlights of the year often include aspects that are traditions to cause them to reflect on times of suffering. So during the harvest when everything has come in and their grain houses are full, they spend a you know, series of days in temporary tents in their backyard to remind them of when they wandered in the desert. And in the Passover Seder, they eat bitter herbs to remind them of the gall of life. So they have this sort of um, expectation, really, that life will be hard, and they commemorate it in a way that uh, is a little foreign to many of us. You said something, too, about uh, your 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 husband has kind of a, a, a kind <laughs> of a relates, deep attachment he to relates this. <laughs> very much to this this culture he whenever he reads the old testament he was like ah oh, i get this i get this <laughs> <laughs> he's a little bit of a kind of an eeyore you know a, a storm cloud sort of follows him around and i think he just he finds comfort in the idea that life will be hard I think in part because life is hard, and it's just easier sometimes to expect it to be hard than to expect otherwise and be disappointed. And here we have Jesus, you know, giving a lot of fodder for that kind of Eeyore mentality. He spends the better yeah. part of two chapters explaining how bad things are going to be, and yet he says, but take heart. He doesn't want us to wallow there. He doesn't want us to be Eeyores. And in the end, he doesn't want us to just fixate on the dark cloud. He says, take heart. And take heart, why? Uh, I've overcome the world. And what we really want, though, is not a figurative overcoming. We want real overcoming. Mm -hmm. That's what we really want. 
And we have kind of a low-level resentment, as we've talked about, when our overcoming doesn't really change our circumstances. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the, the other day, Steph, I, I, this is a perfect illustration of this, this character Vicini in The Princess Bride, he's the bad guy character. And if, you, if you've seen the film, you'll remember the uh, sort of the catchword that Vicini, the bad guy in the film, uses throughout this kind of fantastical adventure. Every time something happens that surprises Vicini, he says, inconceivable. <laughs> he says it throughout the first half of the film. Uh, it's enough that you, you, it's, it just becomes funny. It becomes a running joke that this guy, whenever he's surprised by something, he says, inconceivable. And uh, the, the hero uh, of the film, Inigo Montoya, finally stops and looks at Vicini and says, you keep using that word. And I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> so Inigo Montoya is saying to Vicini, yeah, these things that are surprising you, they're not really inconceivable. We can conceive of these ha- things happening, but we suspect that the same thing is true with Jesus. You keep telling us you've overcome the world. I'm not sure you understand what that means, Jesus, because my world seems like it's overcoming me right now. It reminds me of uh, that uh, the, the famous thing that Teresa of Avila said. She was kind of a spitfire nun, by the way. Um, she's a saint in the Catholic Church, and boy, she was spitfire. And right after she'd almost been washed away by this flooding river, she sensed Jesus saying to her, uh, she wasn't washed away, she was rescued, but like death was a real possibility. So she sensed Jesus saying this to her right after this happened. She said, he, she said, he felt her saying, him saying to her, this is how I treat my friends. And then she replied to him, well, if this is how you treat your friends, it's no wonder you have so few. <laughs> that, that is a real emotion sometimes. And so what is our definition of overcome? Uh, you had said before the other day, Steph, you kind of looked up on the fly some of the definition of overcome, and one of those things was succeed in dealing with a problem or difficulty. And I think there was a long list of stuff that mm-hmm. conveys thwart, yeah, and you know, vanquish, and all kinds of triumphant words, which is, I think, what we want when we hear the word overcome. And so then the the question is, what does Jesus mean when he asks us to take heart and overcome? When we think about uh, possible things that Jesus means when he says overcome the world, here here's a few. So, uh, Steph, you already mentioned this one. I think it's good to reiterate it. He's trying to drag us out of our small story and remind us that we live in a much larger story. What would you what would you say just off the top of your head the larger story is, Steph? Well, eternity for one thing. <laughs> that's that's one thing. <laughs> that's the sort of large thing my mind goes to. Um and obviously we talk a lot about Jesus ultimate goals for us are are different. They involve a lot more shaping our spirits for eternity and con- transforming us so that we're more like him. Um, that's a larger story, I think, than ours that we have for ourselves, which tends to be more temporal. Yeah, and make no mistake, what Jesus intends to draw us into is his family business, and his family business is setting captives free. We're going. That's what he wants to partner with us in, and if we are going to do what Jesus does in the world, set captives free, I know, for me, I have to be completely transformed. I was talking to somebody the other day about one of the young people in our small group who entered into the group kind of a, uh, well, <laughs> in every way, this guy was like the last guy you'd expect to be at a Christian small group. He came because he was um, 
he, he was really drawn to my daughter, Lucy. Many people are drawn to yes. small groups. Yes, for, because, for those reasons. For a love interest. Yes, and this, <laughs> this, guy, this guy entered into our group, and it, it, basically he told my daughter on the side, he said, you know, my, one of my great skills in life is fooling adults. Mm. So I can fool any adult at any time. So this guy enters into our small group with that mentality, like, I can work this system however I want. And he ends up getting completely upended mm. by the heart of Jesus. The longer he's there, the more he gets exposed to the nuclear, uh, the the nuclear uh, sort of fission of Jesus, and he gets radiated by him. And his whole life is transformed. And I was telling somebody the other day, we got to witness uh, over a two-year space of time a life completely transformed by the power of Jesus from the inside out. So that this guy now. It's a legitimate possibility he could become a pastor as he's moving through college now. Um, he's read the whole Bible now. He's, he's uh, debating uh, professors uh, on, uh, over in a kind of an apologetics kind of way. You could never have conceived—it would be inconceivable <laughs> if this would happen to this guy. But he's been dragged out of his small story into the much bigger story of Jesus, and now he's himself— now helping to set captives free in his life. He was a captive who was set free, now he's helping others. That's the kind of life that Jesus is inviting us into, and if that's going to happen, we're going to have to change. <laughs> we're going to have to be transformed by him for that to happen. So the, the bigger story is truly an epic adventure, and he wants us to play big roles in that epic adventure, and that means that things have to change in us. So... Yeah, another thing that he's, I think he's doing when he says, I've overcome the world, is he's not pointing to solutions that exist outside of his presence. It's his presence in us that overcomes, no matter what the circumstances are. And if you think about this for a second, this should offer us great hope, because if our hope is invested in circumstances changing all the time, then we're going to be often disappointed, and there's no way that our circumstances could be crafted in such a way that we live our whole life with our circumstances working out. It just doesn't happen. That's not reality. So the hope Jesus is offering us is real hope. The real hope is that my very presence will encourage you in the midst of your circumstances, meaning give you courage and strength. So I know, Steph, we've talked about this being... um, this could cause us to resent some of what he's offering us. But on the other side of this, what is encouraging about him offering his presence to us rather than changing our circumstances to us? What is encouraging about that? Well, you, you don't have to work for it, for one thing. <laughs> That's good. You know, I mean, I think we can exhaust ourselves pretty quickly. So it's a it's a gift that you receive. It's not something you have to work for. And that's incredibly freeing. And And truthfully, the more you dig into that, the more of almost a feeling of unmerited entitlement that you have, like, I, I, I don't deserve this, and yet I'm receiving it, and it's, um, I think it feels pretty good. Yeah, the, the fundamental sin, uh, the foundational sin uh, um, in the story of God is when Satan tried to convince and did convince Adam and Eve that they could be like gods. That was the very lie that he believed himself, that I'm, I'm as good as God is, and that's what led to his betrayal. That's what led to his lie that Adam and Eve betrayed him. It is the central truth of our life. 
that we are we have this default attraction to you could be like gods. And God knows that's like a cancer. And he loves us. He does not want us to to ingest cancer. Uh, because to think of ourselves like we can be like gods, it's a sure way to destroy the most important thing, which is our our very identity. So Jesus wants us to be dependent on him for rescue and redemption, not ourselves. That's the only safe way to access redemptive power is through him, not the stuff that we work up ourselves. So if we if we have the source of the well wellspring of life and overcoming welling up in us, then all of our brutal realities can't really take our life from us because they must get past the presence of the overcomer in our soul, and they can't get past him. So our life is untouchable, but it's not unwoundable. So Jesus is saying, when you have me and live in me, I am the definition of overcoming. Nothing will overcome you. That doesn't mean that you won't be wounded in the process, because we still live here in a broken world. So we're our life becomes untouchable because we have the overcomer living in us. It doesn't mean that we're unwoundable. The last thing I think about is that uh, Advent is really an invitation uh, today to simply express our gratitude to Jesus for giving us something that supersedes the overcoming of our circumstances, the things that are external to us. His presence plants overcoming in our soul, and Advent is a time when we can reflect back on the many, many ways that we have actually experienced him overcoming in our soul, even when our circumstances don't change. Um, There are so many aspects of that overcoming presence in our lives that has produced some of the great treasure of our lives. When you think about the ways in which Jesus has held up our arms and helped us to persevere when our circumstances haven't changed, we can look back and say, you know, some of the, the great treasures of who I've become have been because he helped me to overcome in the midst of those circumstances. So you said something at the end of our conversation the other day, Steph, that I thought was fascinating, too. We were talking about death and how we've kind of elevated death above, above everything else as the scariest thing yeah. known to man. And you, said, you asked a question. You said, does Jesus really dread even our death? Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Sure, I was on a walk, and I was thinking about death and getting creeped out by it, <laughs> as we as we do. And um, and I was asking, because sometimes I like to ask Jesus, well, what's your perspective on this? And it, it occurred to me that, that perhaps his perspective was actually anticipation, that an event that we dread and get creeped out by, he actually counts down toward. It's this sort of date in the future that he looks forward to. He He has some kind of, you know holy calendar that he checks the days off of, and he is waiting for it to happen, waiting to celebrate it like the way we would wait for a special event that's coming up on the horizon, like the birth of a child or a wedding or something like that. And um, I definitely cannot say that my perspective has conformed to his, um, but I don't think it's unreasonable to think that he does look forward to it. And his perspective on death is entirely different from ours. And I hope that by the time I cross that threshold, I will have his perspective instead of being creeped out. I love that image of Jesus looking forward to our death with expectation for uh, almost a giddy excitement about 
our face-to-face relationship with him. I love that image. He, uh, I think it was Paul who said, death, where's your sting? If you think about the sting of a bee, bee lands on you, it stings you, but it doesn't sting. Um, that's the kind of idea that Jesus is trying to get across here, that yes, it's real, the bee lands, he stings you, but it doesn't sting, because I've taken away the sting. Um, the sting of death doesn't exist anymore, because if you're in me and you live in me, then my presence overcomes the darkness, overcomes death. On our Instagram page for our Advent Challenge, um, I just love—it's full of these great uh, Scripture passages and then something to do as a result um, during Advent. And you can go to our podcast page, uh, episode uh, Season 3, Episode 51, and click on the link for that Advent Challenge if you haven't already. But one of those days I just love, it was tied to this idea of overcoming the world and finding peace in the midst of our sorrow and our grief and even the busyness of Advent. I love this this practical idea that was uh, in our Advent Challenge. Ask Jesus to simply give you a word or a phrase to focus on this week. Then copy it to a spot you'll see see often, like on your bathroom mirror in dry erase marker, or scribbled on a sticky note and put it on your fridge or on your steering wheel. Simply let it be a reminder to seek peace through Jesus throughout the week. That was the idea that we posted. The way that you could also frame this is let it be a reminder of how Jesus is overcoming in you, that his promise to overcome the world is at work in you if he is in you. Let that word or phrase remind you of how he is overcoming in your life today. So I encourage you, take a moment, ask Jesus for a word or phrase that he wants to remind you of during this uh, closing time of Advent, and then put it somewhere where you'll see it all the time to remind yourself, I have the overcomer living inside of me. Hey gang, thanks for listening. Remember, you can find out more information, but in further detail on PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Again, it's Season 3, Episode 51 you'll be looking for. Look for that Advent devotional experience, and don't forget, we do have a number of gift-ready things that would really uh, be profoundly impactful for the people in your life on an ongoing basis. Not only the Jesus-Centered Bible, but the Spiritual Grit, the two devotions that are associated with Spiritual Grit, the Jesus-Centered Life, there's a devotion for teenagers connected to that as well but also our 2019 uh, Jesus-Centered Planner. Um, We sold out of these in 2018, by the way, uh, rather quickly. So they're available now, so that's another excellent gift if you're looking for something to give to someone who you know who could really benefit from drawing near to Jesus every day and would really love a planner. These are beautiful and they're powerful. So there you have it. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play for all the latest podcasts to make sure you don't miss them. And we'll talk again next time. Say goodbye to Steph. Bye, everyone. (laughs)